You're listening to The Weekly, a co-production of WOBC and the Oberlin Review. I'm your host, Johan Kavert, and I'm joined by my co-host and the managing editor of the Oberlin Review, Daniel Marcus. Good to be here. We're extremely honored to be talking with humorist and best-selling author David Sedaris, a three-time Grammy Award nominee for Best Spoken Word and Best Comedy Album. He is also the author of numerous critically acclaimed essays, short stories, and memoirs, including Santa Land Diaries and Me Talk Pretty One Day. His latest book is a collection of his diary entries entitled Calypso and comes out Tuesday, May 29th. David is the commencement speaker for the Oberlin class of 2018. We are so pleased to talk with you today. Welcome to the weekly. Oh, thank you. Um, <clears throat> the, the only thing, you said that the new book was a collection of diary entries, but Calypso is a collection of essays. All right. Well, I, stand, I, I stand corrected. Uh, yeah. My apologies. Ordinarily, I would never say anything. About <laughs> no, no, no. That's good. It's good to get the facts right. So yeah. thank you very much. Um, Wonderful. Well, I guess I was just thinking, um, since we are here in rural Ohio, um, not a place that people often venture, but it sounds like you spent some time at Kent State University. Is that correct? Yeah. I went to Kent State for, well, I was there for one year. Mm-hmm. Okay. But Great. I dropped out. Uh, I withdrew after the second, I don't know, was there, I don't remember if it was on quarter system or semester system, mm-hmm. but I was always, like, I got high when I was 14 once. And, and then I came home and I had my sister smell my fingers. And then I became anti-drug, like militantly anti-drug. Mm. And then I was at college and it was like a TV after-school special, you know, like, oh, just try it. Take a hit. Mm. You know, you're no fun. And then, you know, somebody gave me a shotgun and then there was no stopping me. Then I was just Mr. Drug and I was wake and bake. And, you know, it would be like Tuesday morning and you're on a way to class and someone says, you want some acid? And you're like, yeah. And then Wednesday, someone says, do you want some acid? And you're like, yeah. And, you know, so I took so many drugs, I stopped going to class mm. and I dropped out. Huh. Huh. Well, we were wondering, um, since you were at least maybe, maybe not entirely with it, um, but at least sort of in, in rural Ohio attending college, what sort of you were thinking about coming into this weekend giving a commencement speech, um, reflecting on sort of your time in Ohio? Gosh. Well, I mean, I've given, this will be my fourth commencement address. Mm -hmm. I gave one at the Art Institute of Chicago, which is where I went to school. And then I gave one at Princeton. And then I gave one at SUNY Binghamton. I was born in Binghamton, New York. So, and I've been to Oberlin once before. I gave a talk here, maybe five years ago. Mm. And I remember I was in a, I, I think it was in a chapel. It was a pretty room, but I stayed in Cleveland. So I didn't really, you know, when that happens sometimes, when, you, when you're when you on a tour, when I go on these tours, so when you don't even stay in the town, you don't have much of a, but I, I guess I wasn't, I just thought, I knew, I had heard of, I knew it was a good school, but that's really all that I knew about it. But now, I guess, I I mean, when I was thinking of coming here, I just thought, I don't know why I think of this as like the most PC school in America. I don't know. You know, sometimes you don't, you don't know if it's something somebody told you or something you read or yeah. something in the news that you saw. We've been, or... we've been in a few articles. We've had our fair share of, mm. of those. I'm not sure that that's true. I don't know that I would say that we're the most PC school in America. We're definitely up there, though. It's, you know, it's, it's up there. For better and for worse. Well, because I, I go to, I go on these lecture tours a lot. So mm. I just finished, I went to 40 cities 
I started in April. I went to 40 cities in 42 days, and oh. I do it every fall and every spring. Oh my gosh. But I don't go to that many colleges, to tell you the truth. Mm. I mean, nothing. Usually it's, I'm in the town, yeah. you know, in the town. Somebody produces me in a, like I was in Ann Arbor a mm. few weeks ago, but in the town itself. Yeah. Um, like I go to Ithaca. No, that's a town. Uh, <laughs> gee, I really just don't go to colleges that much. Well, yeah, it's it's a pleasure to have you here. Even, um, and you know what? I think it's probably the reason I don't go to colleges so much is that uh, is that they don't pay enough. They don't, like they don't <laughs> probably because I have a lecture agent who oh, yeah. does all that. Yeah, and so usually colleges like they could, you know, they would say here's a sum we're willing to pay right. for yeah. a reading, and uh, anyway, maybe that has something. Doesn't to do quite with match it. up, huh? Um, you did an interview with Stephen Colbert a couple of days ago where one of your messages that you were saying you were going to give in your commencement speech was forget your fallback plan. And I am someone who happens to have two majors, one of which may be characterized as a fallback plan. I'm curious where that, that message comes from for you and your experience. I mean, I, well, <clears throat> because I went to art school mm -hmm. and I'll tell you, I have made a nice career by taking every bit of advice my father ever gave me and doing just the opposite. I mean, he's really been brilliant that way because every piece of advice was absolute garbage as far as I was concerned. And That's all you need to say in the commencement speech. You'll have it, yeah. <laughs> but other people's parents might give good advice. But I meet a lot of parents who will say, my son or daughter wants to be a writer, and, and we say, that's fine, but you need something to fall back on. And I say, are they a bad writer? No, no, they're wonderful. It's like, then why do they need to fall back? Like, why do you, are you what you're basically saying is you don't have any faith in them before they've even given it a try. Mm. Um, and I think that's not what, they're, they're trying to protect their child. Right. That's what they're trying to do. Right. And it is true that not everybody makes it. But you gotta, you gotta try. Yeah. And I, and I feel like, you know, like I know someone who's a visual artist and then she, and then she was out of school for a couple of years and it's like, well, I'm going to go to law school. Mm. And I just I, I just want to say, like, well, you never painted to begin with. You know what I mean? If you're ready after two years to go to law school. I mean, but then I had I had lunch yesterday with an old friend who I hadn't seen in 30 years who's a writer. And she gets up every day and she writes the same way I do. Mm -hmm. But she's never had a book published she's never you know she has a job that's physically taxing to her comes home at the end of every day sits at her desk and writes like it doesn't if, if you're a writer or if you're an artist nothing's going to stop you yeah. from from doing that and success doesn't have anything to do with it you're just compelled to do it mm -hmm. what can i ask what's your Second major. Uh, I'm a music major in the conservatory here, and I'm a biochemistry major in the college. Both of which I wow. love. Both of which I love. Wow. Um, well, you, well, then, which one is your fallback? Sort of the the science one. Huh. Not because I dislike it. It's just I want to do music. Huh. But I love the science. Oh, see, that's interesting to me. I, I remember um, my older sister when she was in high school. They gave a test at school for people who, if you didn't know what you were interested in, mm. you would take this test and they would tell you. And they told her she was interested interested in um, genetics 
which I'd never heard her say anything about genetics. <laughs> but I've always felt bad for people who don't know, and the world is full of people who don't know what they're interested in. And mm. I always thought, gosh, how can you not know? But it's hard to be interested in two things. Yeah. Like my boyfriend, Hugh, he, he paints. Yeah. And he's probably the most talented painter I've ever known. Mm. But he loves to garden. Mm. And he loves to cook. And he, he's he got, like, many interests. Right. And he, net, he doesn't have that, like, laser focus that that uh, is, is needed. I mean, it's a handicap for him almost mm-hmm. to have, to love many things. Mm. Do you feel like you've already, or you've always sort of been that one track sort of single focus artist on writing um, and you haven't had other distractions to sort of... I started off as a visual artist and so I went to, uh, that was my major when I very first went to college and then, you know, I had some things in the, you know, a little career, you know, in North Carolina, as much of a career as you can have in North Carolina, you know. Mm. Um, And then I applied to the Art Institute but by the time I went I was already caring more about things that I read than things that I saw. Mm. Like when I would look at a painting, I would think, gosh, I wish I owned that. And when I would read a short story, it would just haunt me. And I would, especially if it was something I loved, I could read it over and over and memorize it. And the hairs on my arms would stand up whenever I wanted it to. And I just, it it was more, uh, I don't know, it, it, it 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 felt better to me, bigger to me than visual art. What what would you say in addition to forget your fallback plan or sort of the other things that you're bringing to this address for students and for parents maybe? Well, I tried to think. I tried to think like, okay, why me? What do I know? Mm-hmm. And uh, and. So I just started asking myself that. Like, I know that you have to be really careful about scented candles. Like, there's only two (laughs) kinds worth having. Like, that's hard-won wisdom on my part. Um, What kind of language can you use on this? Oh, any kind. Any Any kind kind? that you want. Because I was with my sister Amy the other night, and she had to give a... She went and talked to a group of high school kids, Uh and their questions like, how do you make it as an actress? You know, how do you do it? And she was thinking, she didn't say it at the time, but it's like, you got to suck a lot of dick, a <laughs> lot of dick. You're going to be spit roasted. You're not even going to know the faces of these men who are fucking you in the ass, like <laughs> going oh on and on. And then she started talking about these horrible, horrible things. <laughs> and we ate. We were laughing so hard. You know, but it's a good way to, on the one hand, it's like, Horrible, but when you think about putting it into an address for high school students, yeah. then there's nothing funnier. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it would be funny as a graduation speech too. You know? Nice. <laughs> wow. So, what's the censorship level of of this speech? Now you've advanced to of the speech. Uh, no, there, there's. I'm, I mean, I'm torn between a fisting joke and a pedophilia joke <laughs> in in the heart of the speech. Because I'd built that right in. Because one of my bits of advice, and it's really good advice, is to always have a joke in your back pocket. Mm. I had to give it, I received an award um, from the Paris Review 
couple months ago. And so I get there, and they say, do you have your speech memorized, or are you going to read it? And I said, speech? And I'm in a room in New York City, and I look out, and there's Jeffrey Eugenides, and there's, uh, oh my God, Don DeLillo, and Joy Williams, and Gay Talese, mm. and David Remnick, and... All the major publishing houses have tables there, and it is literary New York in that room. Mm -hmm. And I've got to go on the stage, and someone's introducing me, and I've got to be on the stage in 30 seconds and give a speech. Most people, it's their worst nightmare, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, what are you going to say? So I got up and I said, an old man looks out a rain-streaked window, saying, if this weather keeps up, the roads are going to be a real nightmare. His grandson looks up at him and sneers, tell me something I don't know. And the old man says, okay, your grandmother's ass can take my entire fist. (laughs) (laughs) It was exactly the right thing to say because it sounded like I was going to tell an antidote, you know, that would come full circle. and It was just a fucking filthy joke and it brought the house down yeah and so that's just a good piece of advice to have a joke in your back pocket and Mm. so sometimes i ask people i say give me a joke and they say what's brown and sticky a stick and that's just if you're in third grade okay maybe right but that's not you got to do better than that yeah (laughs) i have a question a little bit sort of about your particular style and thinking about um the um, Alan Cumming in his recent New York Times review of your most recent book, Calypso, he wrote that... Wait, the one on the front page of the book review? That, that, that's that very one. one, yes. Um, I didn't read it. I never read any reviews. Why but, is that? Um, I stopped in 2000. I just felt like I was hurt by bad ones and really confused by good ones because mm. a good one would say, oh, we love it when he does this. And then I would think, is that what you want me to do? Should I do that more? Is that what you? Because I just want to please people. Uh, is that what? Is that what I should do? So I just stopped reading them. Mm-hmm. Well, anyways, as since you have not read it, I um I did read it um, on, on the cover. Yes, so you're... <laughs> that that exact one. Um, no, but he he talked about sort of that he began thinking in a way that he called sedarian, um, and so sort of I was I was wondering if you would mind sort of talking about what you think your particular style is. And, and you had said earlier that you sort of focused in on liter- or, you know, literature and writing and things like that. Um, what were the influences that sort of got you there? What makes your you know, writing stand out, per se? Well, I mean, I started writing one day when I was 20. And it was really the day that I started reading for pleasure. I dropped out of college and I started reading for, I was hitchhiking across the country and my friend had a Kurt Vonnegut novel and she mm. would, we took turns reading it out loud to each other. And I'd never read him before because he wasn't on the syllabus. Yeah. And, and I thought, wow, reading is fun. You know, you can read books. No one has to tell you to do it. You can do it on your own. And then right around the same time I started writing, just keeping a diary. And I feel like uh, you know, you can't, you could live in the woods and never have, you could never have set foot in an art museum and you can make artwork that will move people. Um, but you can't, there's no such thing as a folk writer. 
you have to read and learn mm-hmm. to seduce a reader. Um, and you can either go to school for that or you can read for it. You know, I, I found I learned so much from other people's mistakes. You know, when I think back of when I was in school, I mean, I took some writing classes at the Art Institute and I learned so much from other people's mistakes. Um, and then there were people like Raymond Carver, who I remember finding, uh, will you please be quiet, please, at the library in 1981. <laughs> but his his sentences were really simple and short, and it just made you think, oh, I can do this. Mm. And it was deceptive. Once you started, you would think, oh, right, you're going to have a story to tell. But still, the nuts and bolts appeared easy. You know? And Joy Williams, same thing. Her language is really simple. And then you think, oh, I bet... Because it would be interesting. Like if I if I was just reading Dickens, I probably would have thought like, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. Mm. And then, you know, I started keeping diary and I started writing. And then I thought I read something over after about a week. And I thought, wow, that sucks. But I thought, well, of course it is. I've only been doing it for a week. I mean, if you've been playing instrument for a week, <laughs> that's a hard thing yeah. is to not give up, to realize, okay, everybody sucks. And then... So I just thought, I'm going to stop reading it over. I'm just going to assume that it sucks and mm. stop reading it over. And then I did. And just sort of, because I think if I had scrutinized it, I would have I would have given up. I would have mm. lost patience. I think it's easier. I think it's harder now because I meet young people and then they'll put their writing online. And no one saw anything as, aside from a letter that I wrote for the first seven years that I wrote. And that's a good thing because I wrote a lot of garbage. And if I had said to somebody, you want to read this garbage? They'd do it once. But then if I came back and said, here's more garbage, I'm not going to read it. Mm -hmm. So, and I think the temptation now would be to think, well, I'm just going to put it out there. At at what point did you decide that you were ready, that it was time to sort of unleash your work on whatever audience would would be willing to read it. And how, how did you come to that sort of realization? Well, I went to art school, and we had critiques. Mm-hmm. So you put your work up okay. on the wall, and you talk about it. And what was interesting to me was that people talked about their work the way they would talk to a psychiatrist, right? Um, and then I realized that you don't arrive at Philip Gustin. You go through him in a really weird way, but then I was in this place where it was more about negative space to me than it was about image and about positive space, and so I went back to Gustin, but it was like I was blocked from entering the <laughs> paint, and I'd be in the room thinking, I am fucking dying here, you know, like you hard. They didn't think of the classmate, they didn't think of their fellow classmates as an audience, mm. right? And and I did, right? Now, if you go to a th- psychiatrist and you think of the psychiatrist as your audience, you're not going to make any progress, right? Your job is not to entertain the psychiatrist. But uh, these weren't psychiatrists. And, so, and I knew my paintings were... 
I looked around me and I said, that person's going to go places. That person's on fire, you know, and that person's going to be on fire for the rest of his life. I'm not, you know, about painting. So mm -hmm. I don't really don't deserve to, I don't even deserve to talk about my, my paintings were jokes. I mean, they were basically signs and you read them and you laugh and then mm -hmm. it's over. You know? right. So I wrote a monologue. Uh, in the voice of a fictional character explaining why my painting wasn't better, like an excuse monologue. Mm. And people in the class laughed, and I thought, that felt better than anything I've ever done in my life. I read something I wrote, and they laughed. And that that's what I want. Mm -hmm. And that sort of changed it mm. for me. And then somebody in the room said, oh, I'm have, we're having a happening at my loft. That's how old, that's how long I'm I'm having a happening at my loft. Um, <clears throat> next Saturday night, do you want to come and read something? And so I did. And then mm. somebody said, I'm having a better happening at my bigger <laughs> loft. In two weeks, do you want to read something? And so I did. But I, I thought, you know what? That thing I read worked, but I'm going to write something new. Mm -hmm. And so, and I read something there and somebody said, oh, we're doing this evening at this you know, place where people put on readings. Do you want to take part in that? And I did. And then somebody said, oh, I have this variety show. Do you want to? And so I just kept saying yes. Mm. I never asked anybody for anything. I never sent a short story to anybody. I never sent an essay to anybody. I never asked anybody if I could read. I never asked anybody if they would be my agent. I never... I just worked, and then the phone rang, and I answered the phone, and it was a New Yorker, and they said, would you like to write for us? And I said, I've been waiting for your call. And then <laughs> the phone rang, and it was, uh, Little Brown, do you have a book we can publish? And I said, well, I believe I do. I've been waiting for your call. Hmm. So, and, and I think part of it was knowing what I wanted, because there, there were phone calls, too, do you want to write for this television show? And I, I was old enough that I could say, that's so kind of you to ask, but that's not really what I had in mind. Mm. Or do you want to do a commercial for this camping equipment? No. But when you've been broke for so long and all of a sudden people are saying, oh, do you want more money than you ever imagined? you got to keep your head on straight to mm -hmm. say, no, that's okay. That's not because you don't come back from that. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, if you're starting out and then you're doing all this stuff you don't believe in and thinking, oh, I'll get back to what I care about as soon as I get more money in my pocket. Right. Then people have already figured out by that point that your word is, means nothing. Right. Hmm. Could I also ask about how this American life sort of factored into that? Because I, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like that that and sort of reading on the radio was one of the ways that you really found mm -hmm. an audience. Is that is that true? I was <clears throat> living in Chicago and I was reading um, something that I'd written and Ira Glass happened to be in the audience. And then we shook hands, and then I moved to New York, and he called a couple of years later asking if I had something that would work for a local show he had on WB in Chicago uh, called Wild, The Wild Room. And then uh, we recorded that story because I'd worked as an elf at Santa Land, and then <laughs> he put it on Morning Edition, and then that. So I really went from an audience. I think my probably my biggest audience had been 500 people, and mm. then from 500 to 10 million people. Yeah. So that was <laughs> quite a leap uh, totally. for me. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing that I'm struck by is I think sort of your, your writing style 
is is in some ways very distinct, um, but it also really matches your. Especially when I've when I've heard sort of stories on This American Life or NPR or things like that, it feels like it matches your narrative voice so well. And so even when I'm reading your work, I, I read your voice into it. Mm. Um, do you think that's a, a natural sort of occurrence or I don't know. I, I just think it's very interesting. Well, I used to think that I read something so that I could read it out loud. And now I think, I mean, I, that I would write something so I could read it out loud. But now I think I write something so that anyone can read it out loud. Mm. So to me, the rhythm is right there and all the signposts and the you know, the slow down signs and the speed limit markers and all of that is right built onto the page. But I read it out loud to myself. I mean, when I'm at the typewriter, I mean, at my computer, I read every line out loud myself. I want, you know, I want it to have a certain rhythm and I want it to flow into, you know. It's interesting, a lot of times you meet people who, I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, uh, you know, when I get the time, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a book, you know. And I can't tell you how many people, that's the thing, if you're a writer and if you have any success, everyone you ever knew in your life is going to have an idea for a book and they're going to want you to help them. And, but you don't, like my first, my first book came out, I've been writing every day for 15 years, you know. But people seem to think like all they need is time, right? So they're going to wake up tomorrow and they're going to write a book. But a lot of those people, they don't have any sense of the rhythm of a sentence. Do you know what I mean? Like they don't understand that it's even a consideration. Right. They, they can't tell like if they read something. Like that was the thing, I, I suppose. Like that's a hard thing about learning to do something, right? Like so you, what instrument do you play? I play the guitar and I can fake it on a couple others. <laughs> so like classical guitar or? Um, jazz. Okay. You could say. So... Let's say if you were to play the the guitar, mm-hmm. like for yourself, yeah. and then you were listening to Joe Pass, and you mm-hmm. were to think, okay, what's the difference between what I just played in my bedroom and that Joe Pass album I listened to? I mean, he might not be your thing, but I mean... How and then you think, how do I get from here to there? About 30 years. Right. <laughs> or... Um, yeah, 30 years or, I don't know, that was interesting to me that a lot of people, they would write something. Like when I started writing, I would look at what I wrote and then I would look at a book and I would say, gosh, what I wrote looks nothing like in this book. How do I get from here to there? But a lot of people, especially people who don't read, they think, well, that probably looks like what it looks like in a book. I want to I want to pivot a little bit and just be very forward with this one. You fed your lipoma to a snapping turtle. Mm-hmm. Okay. How, where did that idea originate from? And what do you mind giving the backstory? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I went to a uh, doctor. I found a little lump right at the base of my rib cage. Thanks. And I was living in France at the time. And I went to my doctor and he said, oh, it's a lipoma. He said, dogs get them all the time. And I said, should I have it cut out? And he said, if you, I guess, if you want to. He made it sound like it was really vain on my part. <laughs> and it was like a hard-boiled egg under my skin. And I was swimming a lot at that point, so I just pulled my bathing suit up higher and got on with it. But then I started thinking just about waste, you know, and I thought 
if you had your tonsils removed, your cat would want to eat your tonsils, right? Or your dog certainly would want to eat your tonsils. And then, so I went to a surgeon on the coast of North Carolina where we have this house. And we have a house there, and then there's a canal near the house where these snapping turtles live. And so I'd go every day and feed them. And then I started thinking, you know what? I bet one of them would like my tumor. And so <laughs> I went to a surgeon, and he said it was against the law for him to give me anything he cut out of my body. And that didn't seem fair to me. And so I was on stage in El Paso, and I mentioned that. And this woman came up and said, I'll cut it out of you, and I'll let you keep it. And she was a doctor. She That's wasn't good. a surgeon. <laughs> she said, but I'm not a surgeon, but I, you know, I took a couple classes. And if I cut you open and it looks like it's a, more than I can handle, we'll sit you back up and send you on your way. Yeah. I said, great. And so <laughs> she cut me open and <laughs> removed the tumor and shipped it on ice to North Carolina. Wow. And I fed it to a snapping turtle who loved it. But then I met a young man and he had one of his, I, we're, I was signing his book. And I said, you're going to get a job this summer? And he said, I can't. He said, one of my kidneys is dead inside of me, and they're going to perform uh, surgery this summer. And it, it's so wasteful to me that they didn't feed that to an alligator. Like, <laughs> he's got a kidney, right? They're taken out of him. And what are they just going to throw it away or burn it or whatever they do? Mm-hmm. Why? They're alligators. I mean... <laughs> Let's say a dog would be like, you'd think, okay, well, I don't know if I want a dog eating, my dog eating it. I mean, I don't have a dog. So as far as I'm concerned, they could make dog food out of it. I, I wouldn't care. But, I, you know, especially an, an alligator that's going to swallow something whole. You know what I mean? <laughs> why not? I mean, I'm serious. Why not? Mm. Or limbs that are cut off. What, why are you going to... Did you, there was an article in the paper a number of years ago when it was a woman who, she was Greek-American, mm-hmm. lived in Florida, and she was caught training her dog with a human foot. It was a, She was an EMT technician, mm-hmm. or an EMT driver, right? Yikes. And so somebody lost her foot in an accident. She took the foot home and used it to train her dog with. And it was Cindy Economou, I remember. And she got in huge trouble. And I thought, why? <laughs> they couldn't sew the foot back on. Why not let somebody... I mean, if they, if they took my foot off and they said, so, look, somebody wants to use it to train your dog, I'd say, great, fine. <laughs> I mean, what do I want, a decent burial for my foot? I mean, <laughs> what do I care? <laughs> I think they made too big of a deal out of it. And I think they made too big of a deal out of, you're not going to give me my tumor. I made it. <laughs> right? That is, and I made it and... I am paying you, I don't know, like $5,000 to cut it out of me. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to give it to me? Mm. Fuck you. I'll go, to some lady in, <laughs> I'll go to some lady in Texas. A veterinarian. I talked about it on stage one night. A veterinarian said, I'll cut it out of you. And I said, great. But he didn't have a way. He was office was 20 miles away from the theater. Uh. I was performing it. And he didn't have a way to... Uh, I didn't have a way to get there, so. Huh. <laughs> but I think it'd be fun to be operated on by a veterinarian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it was a heart transplant, I might right. say, "Can I see your? Can I see a certificate to know for sure you're a veterinarian?" Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it 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 seems it seems. I mean, it's 
it's a funny thing, but it seems it seems to be part of a broader this 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 whole story, which is the the that shares the title of the book, right? Um, seems to be part of a larger sort of probing into growing old and you know all the concerns that come with that. Can you talk about that a little more? Is that something that? Well, usually when a book comes out. You know, your publisher has a press release and all that stuff, and I never get involved in that aspect mm-hmm. of the book. Um, and usually it's your editor who writes Jacket Flap, mm. you know, to say what your book is about and yeah. what it means. Mm. But what's interesting, uh, what's troubling about that to me mm. is that then you become your editor's editor, and your editor sends you the Jacket Flap, and you say, mm, I'd rewrite that. And part of it, it feels good to get that revenge. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it just alters the relationship a bit. So there's a fellow who I think is really smart who lives in Seattle, so I paid him to write the jacket flap. Mm. Because I don't know that it's my job as the writer to know what I'm writing about, Mm. frankly. you know, I don't sit down with a theme in mind, but I write about my life, and because Mm. I'm getting older, I guess it just makes sense that the things that I'm writing about, you know, I mean, like my life changed. When you get gray hair, then if I would rob a bank, they would say, what did he look like? He had gray hair. That would be it. Mm. That's all they would say. Because every person with gray hair looks alike to a young person. And so your life changes a bit when you become that, mm. when people start calling you sir, when somebody stands up to give you their seat on the bus, and you're thinking, I'm really, I'm only 61. But then you think, eh, it's a free seat, you know, so, <laughs> you know, so you take it. Right. Um, so, you know, when you start to pee on yourself, you know, like not buckets <laughs> or anything, you know, but <clears throat> just little things you start noticing. And I'm sure in 10 years it'll be, you know, in 10 years after that, it'll be even more so. But mm. um, but it was, I didn't sit out, set out to do it. It's just... Kind of happened that way. Hmm. Have have there been other aspects of your writing that have sort of changed over the years? I was I was thinking a lot about you. You said that you sort of been writing a diary pretty consistently since like the seventies. Um, has the sort of the process or the schedule or whatever that you used to do that has that changed a lot, or is it pretty consistent Slightly. throughout the years? I mean, you know, I used to do it at night. And then I started doing it in the morning. and okay. But, yeah, I mean, I, then I started used to do it with hand, and then I did it on typewriter, and now I do it on laptop. But, mm. um, but you know, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I recently sold all of my papers, and that includes all of my diaries, to Yale. Wow. Oh, wow. And so they're coming to take them away in July. Huh. And I thought, what did I just do? Because it wasn't like I, I needed the money. Uh, it wasn't like I needed the money. I guess part of it is they're taking my paper, so with drafts of stories and things. Mm-hmm. So um, I, uh, I just wanted to free up space in my house. But from the year 2000 on, I had my diary on the computer. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to scan everything before then and Got give it. me copies of it. Huh. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the cartoonist, graphic novelist, Alison Bechtel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's an Oberlin alum. Oh, really? Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's super interesting sort of thinking about her work 
as a as a writer of sort of memoirs um in her a couple of her her novels she talks about just sort of like an obsessive need to to archive her own past and sort of just like goes mm-hmm. through it and, and things like that um so I think that's one of the, the interesting so much of your work is sort of about your own experience and and you know taking things from your diaries and things like that um do you think you have sort of a a, a need to sort of reflect on on past experiences and, and really write about that or <clears throat> Well, I kind of stumbled into this, really, because I was writing fiction. And then when I was put on the radio, <clears throat> they needed nonfiction. And so I did that Sandland thing, and I thought that would be the end of it. And then they said, can you come back next week? And I thought, oh, okay, what am I going to do? And so when I look back on some of those early radio things, I see somebody who was thinking like, fuck, what do I do now? And so I would read different things from my diaries Whereas now I'd be more inclined to sit down and write an essay, yeah. you know. But I did a radio series for the BBC back in the 90s. And every week I had to come up with something. I don't, I don't like having a weekly deadline, especially if you're writing humor. Mm-hmm. Because then it's like, what's up with sausage? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, and you start looking des- so desperately for things to be funny and... You know, you're lucky when you stumble upon something that's funny, you know, like the idea of talking to high school students, <laughs> you know, about how to make it as an actress. And <laughs> like, that's funny. Or when you see something that's funny or when you find something that's worthy of being made fun of. Mm. But you can't, I don't know, I don't, those things don't come to you on a schedule. One another another excerpt of the new book that that sort of struck me was a part where you um, were reading uh, and talking about the um, legalization of gay marriage in the states mm. and how you how you had felt about that and it, it it struck me because you said that it was a right that you wanted to have so that you could sort of spit on it to, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, I'm curious now, you know, that that decision came down almost three years ago. It'll be three years, about a month. How does it, how did, how do you feel looking back upon that now, especially after having talked to your accountant and sort of figured out the, all the, the tax Certainly, I really feel, still feel the same. I wish that gay people got the right to marry and that not a one of them did it. Mm. You know, I feel it was important getting the right to do it. But then at the same time, I just wish that it's a mixed thing. On the one hand, like someone said a while ago, being gay isn't good enough anymore. You know, you have to have, you know, you have to be trans or you have to, uh, you know, be a genderqueer or you have to be, uh, being gay is nothing anymore. And, and in one way that's good, right? you know, because it used to be, you know, when my first book came out, they would put it in the gay section of the bookstore. Mm-hmm. And that's not where I wanted to be. Right. I wanted to be in the bookstore proper, yeah. you know. But at the same time, so many aspects of gay culture are disappearing mm. that a lot of young people, on the one hand, it's great that they'll, that they, you know, that they won't feel like that level of discrimination. But there's something too about not feeling like you're really uh, kind of a member of an underground club, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
but I, uh, uh, yeah, I just lost the thread of that. <laughs> I've decided I'm going to be age queer. <laughs> Don't put me in your age box. <laughs> I'm 12. I am 12. If I say I'm 12, I'm 12. Age is non-binary. <laughs> Oops, I'm eight now. Um, and you also said in that in that little segment of the story that you that you proposed to uh, your boyfriend Hugh eighteen times. What happened yeah. after the eighteenth proposal? Well, then we got engaged. Ah. We didn't have a ring or anything. We we're just gonna, and then we. I think we'll just be engaged for the rest of our lives. Got it. I just mm-hmm. can't manage to go through with that. I. That's the thing too about gay marriage. Then people say, "Where's your husband?" And it's like we're not married. But I don't like the word partner either. Mm. But I don't want to. I never wanted to make people feel. You know, if somebody came up and said, "Where's your partner?" I would have said, "Boyfriend." I don't like the word partner. Then they're going to feel like walking on eggshells. Like, oh, mm. what do you say to you know? What can you say or what can't you say to a gay person? You know, they mm-hmm. go off all the time. So I thought, well, I don't like the word partner, but it beats husband. <laughs> One of the things I've been intrigued by is is uh, sort of the the rise of the idea of of like self-care and of, really, of self-care have you heard about that sort of just like like treat yourself or um just sort of do things that that sort of fulfill your like emotional or physical needs or whatever huh. um and i think it's it's i think it's it's relatively like a recent phenomena yeah. um but it, certainly big here too yes yeah. um totally at, at oberlin and it and it has sort of self-care longer roots yeah you mean like Putting your own stitches in, <laughs> <laughs> just 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 more like the idea of, of taking care of yourself and and really um, like sometimes there's so many other drains on you and and you need to sort of prioritize yourself. Yeah. And I um, I I saw in in your writing sometimes I think you sort of are emblematic of that a little bit just because you can sometimes you know sort of you won't take crap from other people. Or, or you will take... I take so much crap from other people. Okay, yeah. well, there you go. Yeah, like, you wouldn't know. Like, I I wouldn't say to you, like... Uh, I, like, I'm, I'm not a confrontational person. Mm-hmm. Um, so you probably wouldn't know it if you were irritating me. You wouldn't know it. Mm. Um, but... Uh, I, that's the good thing about being a writer is that then you think it's all material. You know, I, I don't know what people who don't write do, mm. you know, when they're in a situation where somebody is mean to them or somebody's boring them or somebody is. So self-care would be like, I would be like, you know what? I got to take care of myself now. I've got to. Uh, I'm not going to go to class today. I'm just going to give myself the day off. Oh. Sort of, you know, because I yesterday was so stressful and then. You know, and you just give yourself. You know, I. You know what though, I. I know so many writers who are such babies. <laughs> I mean, you. If you want to be a baby, a spoiled little baby, go into writing. <laughs> and all these writers say, "Well, I did the reading, but I can't possibly sign books. I'm exhausted." It's like you read out loud for an hour. It's tiring. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like there are people yeah. out there, who, who are, you know, work at the UPS store. There are people out there who 
have horrible jobs that they can't bear, but they've got debt and they've got families and so they've got to do it. You read out loud for an hour. And then people who, uh, I I met this woman and she said, oh, I, I used to, um, she's a popular author, right? I can't sign books for more than 20 minutes because people talk to me and I just take on all of that. Mm. Okay. My record, 10 and a half hours, sitting on my ass, signing books, 10 and a half hours. People come up. My my sister committed suicide, too. Uh, my husband just left me for another woman. I go home. I sleep like a baby. I wake up the next morning. I, all I remember is I put notes in my notebook so I can write about it in my diary. Mm-hmm. I move on. And when these people say, oh, I take it on myself, I think that's bullshit. You know what I mean? You're just, it's that whole idea like, Oh, I'm stressed. Well, everybody is. You know, I mean, if you're if you're a surgeon and and you, you know, you're under. You, you know, let's say you're already being sued by one person because you took out the wrong kidney, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then you've are you got, are you gave the patient their kidney and was yeah. illegal. <laughs> and you've got uh, surgeries lined up all day. Meanwhile, you're I don't know. You're going through a divorce. Okay. All right, you might have some stress to talk about, but people who I know, it's like, you know, well, I had to give the babysitter a ride home last night, and it was after midnight, and it just wore me out, and I'm just so, I was just so stressed by the whole thing, and I think that's, you should, you should be imprisoned <laughs> for, for your babiness, your babyishness, for your, for just for just wasting people's time, even suggesting that that's a problem. Hmm. One one thing that I I always want to ask the people that we talk to on the show about, because we're in that, we're in this moment right now, is there have been a lot of very powerful men in recent months who have been accused, most of them probably rightly, um, of doing really terrible things to women and sometimes men as their as their intimate partners. I'm curious, as someone, you know, you're not necessarily in the movie business, which is where a lot of the focus has been around this, but you're a prominent personality and you, I'm sure, know people in the world and you, I'm sure you hear things. I'm curious how you perceive this sort of American reckoning that we seem to be having for the past six months to a year. Well... You know, I, I had a job uh, when I lived in New York, mm-hmm. and I had a boss, and the boss was gay, and I was young, and we would get in the elevator to go up to work, and he would just, you know, grab onto me and, mm-hmm. you know, grope me, and I didn't like it, and I didn't know how to say no, and he was my boss, and so what I started doing was take, I'd say, you know what, I'm going to take the stairs. You know, in New York City. I'm going to walk up 31 flights of stairs. I just want the exercise. <laughs> wow. But I liked him. And <clears throat> it was with, I couldn't find the way to say, like, man, I hate it when you do that. Yeah. Right? But would I retroactively go back and get him in trouble? No. Because I liked him. And I looked at it like, I should have found a way to say something, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess people would call that victim blaming or whatever, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, it was minor. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, 
years of abuse. It wasn't threatening. He, you know, he never forced his tongue down my throat. It yeah. wasn't that. Um, but it's interesting to see, you know, writers who, you know, in the past couple months, you know, and then you would read about a writer and it would be that he forcibly kissed somebody mm-hmm. and that was bad. And then somebody would say, and he talked over me. And it's like, well, it's not, it's not against the law to talk over somebody, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I, uh, I was at, a, someone I think tried to hashtag me to them a while ago because mm-hmm. I was at a, uh, I was signing books and this woman came up and I said, have you ever had sex for money? <laughs> and then she tried to make it like that I was being, you know, abusive. And yeah. I just thought it was funny that somebody would come to get a book signed and that would be the question that you would ask them. Not like, <laughs> what brings you out tonight or what brings you? And I'm just going to insist that certain things are just funny. I mean, yeah. and she got upset, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, I like signing books and I like talking to people and I like, you know, sometimes you say the wrong thing to the wrong person and you look up and it's like, fuck, I just said that to the wrong person. I've never, you know, if a guy came up to get a book signed, I would never say anything about his appearance. Mm. I would never say like, well, will you turn around and bend over? You know, I would never, because that, because I'm gay, that just seems like that seems abusive yeah, to me, yeah. you know. So the way I talk to men is different from the way I talk to women mm-hmm. when I'm signing books. Right. But I remember years ago I signed book uh, this book for this 17-year-old. He was with his dad, and the kid came up. And I said, did you just get your braces off? And he said, I got them off yesterday. He said, how could you tell? I said, your teeth just look liberated. I said... <laughs> Those are the those are the, those are the most perfect teeth I've ever seen in my life. Mm. I'd give anything to have your teeth, right? That's it. Yeah. His dad comes along. Well, you know, what do you do for a living? Blah, blah blah. And then the father fancies himself a writer, so he writes the this encounter up as an essay, mm. and he talks about me flirting with his son. Mm. And I'm thinking, that's how did I flirt with him? But I think a lot of times that's something somebody brings with them, right? My son's good looking, you're gay, so you're going to flirt with my son. Right. And people have done that. One time this woman came with this handsome guy. And I said to him, like, how in debt are you? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, do you owe for your how? You know, just ask. And then woman turns to him and says, see, I totally told you he was going to hit on you. I said, how did I hit on him? Mm-hmm. I said, did I ask him to come to my hotel room? Did I tell him where I'm staying? Did I, what What did I, and she said, well, you know, you were talking to him. I said, I've been talking to people all night. That's why you've been in line for three hours. But again, that's something she brought with her. Right. He's a good looking guy. I'm gay. I must, therefore, want to hit on him. Right. So, I don't know. I think intent, I don't know. I think you have to read intent. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you have to read somebody's spirit. Yeah. Um. You know, a lot of times if you took things out of context, um, you know, they could look pretty bad. <laughs> Plenty of but, the jokes we've made we've made in this last hour probably even, you know, yeah, you could take out of context. Right. Then they would look bad. But I, I think if I, you know, if I, uh, 
you know, look at what's in my heart. Did was I trying to humiliate somebody? Was I trying to make them feel uh, threatened? Was I trying to? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. What do you think? Because you you're often sort of right humor and comedy and things like that, and that sort of I think it has power because it can be transgressive or just sort of subvert norms and things like that. What do you think the power of comedy is um, and how it can sort of help or harm, especially in, in, in sort of issues like this, like thinking about like Louis C.K. And, and things like that, where he was respected for a lot of the things that he said, um, but then maybe not necessarily for the actions. Um, I mean, I think the power of comedy, I mean, I think quite often... Nothing's duller than a person with a cause, right? So I have a cause now, and it's litter, because in England, people throw (laughs) Mm -hmm. everything out the car window. So I spend between four and eight hours a day picking up trash on the side of the road. Wow. And then I was invited to the House of Commons to talk about it. And what I was suggesting to them was that they put together a campaign and make brutal fun of litterers. But (laughs) England's the kind of place like, no, no, that would be... You know, but I thought that's the absolute best way to do it. Like if you had commercials in which people litter and those people would have to be ugly because then litterers at home would be like, like, wait a minute, he's doing and saying the exact things I do, but I don't look like that. Do do, do I? I mean, to find a way to belittle and humiliate and and try to change people's behavior that way, Mm -hmm. you know. Instead of the English way, which is to pretend like everybody does it, right? And to pretend like somebody on our street in London puts their trash out too soon, right? And in England, you're not allowed to go to that person and say, you got to stop putting your trash out. Instead, they put something through everybody's mailbox that says, Mm -hmm. we've noticed you've been putting your trash out. So you can't go to that person because that's bullying if you go to that one person. So instead, you have to go to everybody. And that's like the English way, and it's like, so it's not, but I think that's a situation where humor could really, you could really put the gloves on humor, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, I think it's the best reaction to a, to a lot of, I, I mean, do you remember a couple of years ago when Obama made those jokes about Donald Trump at the, I mean, and people say that was the moment Donald Trump decided, like, that gave him his evil you know, his the turned him into the evil. He was already an evil person, but it still is delicious. It was delicious to me at the time mm. for um, Barack Obama with such good timing mm. to belittle Donald Trump to that to that extent mm. in in a forum in which it was acceptable. Yeah. Right? Hmm. What What appeals to you about? Picking up trash. When I do it, it's not there anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I just, it's so beautiful where I live, and I don't know what it is. People just throw everything out the car window. I Mm. drove, was driven here from Cleveland, and I couldn't get over how clean it was, uh, the sides of the road. Mm -hmm. Do you see any connection between sort of picking up trash and and picking up other things that people have discarded and what you write about? Mm, Maybe. I mean... 
You know, I listen in on people's conversations. I mean, I was in New York for the past six days, and because of Memorial Day, everybody left. And so it was just tourists in the neighborhood I was in. Like I listened to an Englishman tell his companions, point to the public library. That's where they filmed Night at Museum. That's exactly where they filmed. And it's like, that's not you idiot. That's a library. It's not. (laughs) (laughs) But I wrote it down. (laughs) You know, I wrote it down in my diary. I mean, you know, if I hear, you know, any bit of, overhear a bit of conversation that's, that's shocking to me, or, or that wasn't shocking, that was hardly shocking, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm always collecting, you know, scraps from here or there, or images, or, uh, you know, little scenes that I, uh, that I come across, or, you know, I mean, I write in my diary for, you know, I can just write in it for hours every day, mm-hmm. just about... Like last night, I told this cab driver, I said to the cab driver, I said, where are you going? Like, I, why are you taking me blocks out of the way? And he said, because if I go up six, there's going to be too much traffic there. Anyway, I said to him, when I got out, I said, I'm so sorry. I tried to tell you how to do your job. You, mm-hmm. were, you were right in the long run. Yeah. I apologize for that. It was just a little encounter, but... You know, I could feel him thinking like, you know, the way you would if if you were trying to do your job and then somebody distrusted you or somebody, you know, the person deserves an apology. Mm -hmm. So it was just a little beautiful relationship that had a beginning, a middle, and an end Mm. and cost me $12. (laughs) Um, Just just to wrap it up on the the topic of um, little moments like that and picking up scraps as you go, are there any little scraps or moments from Oberlin so far that are going to end up in the in the next diary entry? Well, I went out to lunch and this woman came up. I wasn't expecting that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've had a lot of people come up to me, you know, just to talk to me. And right. um, we actually had a really nice conversation, this woman, and then she brought her daughters over and it was really pleasant. I guess I had been thinking, I don't know what I'd been thinking in terms of this graduation speech. Um, I don't know what I had uh, I don't know, it's just been uh, really friendly since mm. I got since I came here. And then tonight I have an event uh, but they gave me, sent me a schedule and one of the words on the schedule is pageantry. <laughs> and another one is a robing room. So Okay. I'm expecting some pageantry. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so great to look on your schedule and see the word pageantry. <laughs> huh. Very good. Well, it, uh, we're so pleased that you're in Oberlin. And with that, it looks like we've run out of time, unfortunately. Thank you, Daniel, for joining me. Always good to be here. And David, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Oh, thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Weekly, a co-production of WOBC and The Oberlin Review. The show is created, written, and produced by Daniel Marcus and me, Johan Kavert. As always, you can find our show on Apple Podcasts and Google Play by searching The Weekly Oberlin, and the show is also now available on Radio Public. You can also listen on the web at www.anchor.fm forward slash the dash weekly. Thanks for listening.